Tonight, we're going to look at another miracle of a different kind. It's what I would call the trifecta. You've got miracles where Jesus or one of the prophets controls the elements, where they heal, could even be resurrect the dead. And then tonight, we look at the miracle of provision. So what I want to do is instead of closing with the scarlet thread, I'm going to open with the scarlet thread tonight. Okay, and see some connections and then talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and how it relates. Think about Elijah. <clears throat> what miracles come to mind when you think about Elijah, the prophet? What? Fire from heaven. Sure. He calls upon God to send fire, and there it comes. That's controlling the what? The elements. Hmm. Not only did he do that, but the New Testament tells us that when he spoke, the rain stopped. And then when he spoke again, three years later, the rain began again, controlling the elements. What else do you remember about Elijah? The oil, the oil and the flour, the widow of Zarephath, right? Uh, there, there was a famine in the land because he had spoken the word of God and it, there was a drought. And he went to the brook and he drank from the brook and the ravens fed him until what? The brook dried up and then God sent him to, of all places, the Phoenician uh, territory of Zarephath. Wow. And the widow is to provide for him, but she doesn't have anything. And you know the story. You know, he says, don't worry about it. You, you take your flour and the oil, you make a loaf, you bring it to me and you provide for your son. And I promise you, you your provision will not run out as long as there's a drought. And that happens. So that's a miracle of what? Provision. What else, what else do you remember about Elijah and his miracles? What? Well, yeah, he was fed by the ravens. Yeah, but what else happened in Zarephath? The idol getting up gets knocked down. What else happened with the widow of Zarephath? Her son died. And she says, you know, you're a prophet of God, and you came, and you let God kill him. <laughs> How'd you like for that to be weighed on your shoulders? And so he takes the boy in his arms, takes him upstairs, lies upon him three times, and revives him and brings him back down. And the widow says, I know now, I know that you're a prophet whose word comes from God, and it's true. So you see those three kinds of miracles. Miracle of provision, the miracle of healing, and the miracle of controlling the elements. Think about Moses. Think about Moses. Did he ever control the elements? Yeah. <laughs> Holds out his rod, and what happens? The sea parts. Did, did he ever make provision for the people? Okay. He, he struck the rock, and the water came out. And he also purified the water at Marah, too. And then later, he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he struck it again. But he provided water. You might say, well, he also provided manna, and he provided quail. That is not accurate. Who did that? God did it. God did it. So miracle of provision, miracle of controlling the elements. What, what about healing? Did he ever heal? You know, they had left the Mount Hor, and they were on their way skirting along the Red Sea to go around Edom, and the people then became impatient. And because they complained against God, God sent among them fiery serpents, and the people implored Moses to stop it. And he went to God, and God said, do what? Make a bronze serpent. 
that hold it up. And those who have been bitten that look upon it will be what? Healed. Well, we know that all of these miracles were not done explicitly and only exclusively through the through the, the prophets, but God, well, they were done through the prophets. The prophets didn't do them. God was doing it through them. Both of these, Moses and Elijah, are prototypes of the coming Christ. So we think about the miracle that we talked about last week. He performed the miracle of what? Controlling the elements. The week before, controlling uh, healing. And tonight we look at one where he does what? Where he provides for his people. You know, Paul says in Philippians, and my God will what, supply all your needs. The widow of Zarephath's cat, uh, pantry didn't run dry. Provide all your needs according to his riches and glory, and not Moses, not Elijah, but in whom? In Christ Jesus. So I want to talk about the scarlet thread for just a moment. You know, we know this. We've been taught this ever since we started coming to Sunday school, I reckon. He performed three offices. Three functions. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, performed three things, or he was three things. He was blank, blank, and blank. He was prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. So he's a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 forecasts this. It says, I am, God says, I am going to raise up from among you a prophet like whom? Like Moses. And Jesus fulfills that. So clearly, one of his offices is to be the prophet. Uh, priest. This is a little known covenant. It's a little known promise because we don't focus so much on the priesthood. But in Exodus 28 and 29, when the priesthood is instituted with Aaron, God promises Aaron, an eternal promise is made, that his priesthood will be perpetual, it will continue forever. Well, that's fulfilled by whom? By Jesus. And then, of course, we know the eternal covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel, uh, uh, Samuel 7. And that was that his lineage would sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. And then in Isaiah, that promise is given explicitly of the coming Christ. There would be no end to his government and he would sit upon the throne of David forever. So you see, those are, pro those are prophesied in the Old Testament, that Jesus will fulfill those three offices, those three functions, prophet, priest, and king. I'm not going to do prophet first for obvious reasons. I want to end with that, so it's a segue into our today's story. But he was priest. How do we know Jesus being a priest, even during his years of ministry? We think of his being a priest when he then is the sacrifice, he makes the sacrifice, he fulfills the requirement to pay for our sin. Yeah, he's a priest in that way. But even before that, he was a priest. So when Chris told us the other day, when he looks at the paralytic, the first thing that he does is he what? He forgives his sin. And that wasn't the only time. He forgave sin on more than one occasion. The woman who anointed his feet with oil, there are a couple of accounts of that. One is Mary, and this may be another occasion, maybe another woman. Might be another story about Mary, but I think it's another woman, and she anoints his feet. And then when he sends her away, he tells her, he, he, he does what? He forgives her sin. The woman caught in adultery. It doesn't say that he forgave her sin, but when he tells her to depart, he says, now do what? Go and don't sin anymore. 
The man at Bethesda, at the pool of Bethesda, he tells him, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So he, he is a forgiver of sin. John, the second chapter, there are a couple of key events there. One is the first miracle that he performed. Where was that? At Cana and the transforming of the water into wine. And then after that, he goes to Jerusalem and he does what? He cleanses the temple. That was a priestly function of Jesus. He became the sacrifice. We know that. And now, is he priest? Absolutely. Where is he right now? At the hand of, right hand of God, the Father Almighty, perpetually, the author of Hebrews tells us, making what? Intercession for our sins. He is the high priest of the new covenant. Jeremiah prophesied this in Jeremiah 31. And then Hebrews The 8th chapter tells us that he is the fulfillment of that. So very clearly he is priest, not just then but now. He's king. Gabriel told Mary in the first chapter of Luke that God would grant her son the throne of David forever and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. The Magi come. The Magi come to worship a priest? No. The Magi come to worship a prophet? No, the Magi come to worship what? A king, the king. Nathaniel, when he sees him and after he becomes aware of Jesus knowing about him before he ever even saw him sitting under the fig tree, Nathaniel responds by saying what? (laughs) I don't think he understands everything that he's saying here, but it was accurate. He says, you are the son of God. You are the what? King of Israel. Jesus preached. He preached what? It says he goes into Galilee, and the very first thing that he does is he went preaching the good news of the what? Kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and believe the good news. And today, we know this from Revelation 17 and 19. He is the what? King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, the last part of the scarlet thread. He is also prophet. You see, the people identified him as a prophet. Partly because of his miracles, partly because of the way he taught. He taught with authority, not like the scribes and the other leaders, religious leaders. But the Samaritan woman, near the end of that conversation, when he has basically removed all the obstacles between him and her, (laughs) one by one by one, then she looks at him and she says, I perceive this, that you are what? You are a prophet. Not just a prophet then, she discovers that he is what? The son of man. The man born blind. He testified then to the Pharisees in John the ninth chapter. After he is brought before them in the inquisition and then later let go and he comes back. As he's talking to them, he testifies to him, I know this about that man, that he is a prophet. At Nain, Fear gripped the people after he raised the widow's son. Fear gripped them, and then they said this, that a great prophet had arisen among them. When he is in the temple in John, the seventh chapter, and he says, come to me and drink. Basically, I am the living water, and I will give you the innermost refreshment that is eternal. Then they walk away, and some of them begin to say, hmm, maybe this man isn't a sinner. 
Maybe this man is not demon-possessed. Maybe that he is a prophet. No, they say the prophet. When they say the prophet, what do they mean? The prophet. Now, they might be expecting Elijah to come. It might be he, because they're expecting that from Malachi. Or it might be from Deuteronomy 18, the prophet who is to be like Moses at the triumphal entry. They claim then in Matthew's account, this is the prophet. This is the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, on the road to Emmaus. As they're talking to Jesus and they don't know who he is, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they describe Jesus as Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. You see, he is the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And Peter makes this very clear. In his sermons at Pentecost, <clears throat> in one of them, he, basically, he, he says this explicitly. He says, this is the prophet that was to come, that is like Moses. Jesus has fulfilled that prophecy. So it's not just our deriving it from the Old Testament. Peter tells us that it has been fulfilled through Jesus. And when you look at the unique characteristics of that prophet that was to come, Several chapters later in Deuteronomy, it describes who this prophet is going to be like. Deuteronomy 34. And there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Did the Son of God know the Father face to face? Absolutely. None like him for all the signs and wonders. What's that code word for signs and wonders? Miracles. That the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to, and to all this land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So it's very clear that one of the signs of being a prophet of God is the ability to perform what? Miracles. Miracles. Jesus did many things that fulfilled the prophetic uh, office. He, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught and he fulfilled the law. He not only taught it, but he fulfilled the law. He had prophetic insight. He knew what was in the hearts and minds of men. He knows that the scribes that are sitting there in Capernaum when he forgives the sin, he knows what they're thinking. How can a man talk like that? <laughs> He's blaspheming. He, he reads their heart and their minds. He discerned the hearts and minds of men and women, and he also predicted events. He predicted his own death. But probably the preeminent sign of being a prophet was a performance of miracles. Why did he perform miracles? Because he was accomplishing the Father's will. And sometimes that took a miracle to, uh, to, to do it. He did it to glorify God. He always glorified God whenever he did a miracle. He didn't take credit for himself. And we'll see that tonight. It validated his message that he was the one sent from God, and it, it validated him as the messenger. But, you know, always there, there was the need to minister to people. Driven by compassion, he cared for people, and he was meeting their needs. This wasn't just a supernatural demonstration of God's power. It was God caring for people's needs. And so we've seen the three kinds that he did. He did healing, as we saw in Chris's sermon in Capernaum. He controlled nature, as we saw in Patrick's sermon about the paralytic. And tonight, he makes provision. He's done that by transforming water to wine. That's amazing. 120 gallons of water turned into the finest wine. Isn't that amazing? What a party that must have been. <laughs> 
He provides a draft of fishes when they can't catch anything from the boat. He tells them, put your net on the other side, and they, they catch the fish to provide. But tonight is probably the most famous of all the miracles of provision in Mark, the sixth chapter. So let me read it. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. You remember that from this morning? There it is. They've just reported from their mission, the 12 going into the villages and towns. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a a secluded place and rest a while. For you see, there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to rest or to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Okay, now pause just a moment. (laughs) You know, they've, they've gone away to rest. They're exhausted. And he, did Jesus ever get tired? Sure. I was thinking about this the other day. Did Jesus ever get sick? Well, we don't, we don't have any account of it here, but Beverly reminded me the other day, he suffered everything just as we do. He lived through everything we, we do. So, yes, he probably got sick from time to time. He's tired, and so are they. It would have been easy to escape, to go away, to be a bit, as we talked about this morning, resentful. Why are they coming after us? But what does it say? He saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to do what? He began to feed them. No, he began what? To teach them. Wow. Hmm. He began to teach them many things. And it was already quite late. His disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate. Well, that's why they went there, (laughs) to get away from the crowd. And, and it's already quite late. Why don't you send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat? But then he answered them, you, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go, go and, and look. And when they found out, they said, five, five loaves, and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and he broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were what? They were satisfied. They were filled. 5,000 men. So it wasn't just a uh, tasting party. It wasn't hors d'oeuvres. They were filled and they were satisfied. And they picked up the 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, the 14th chapter, three chapters after what we dealt with this morning. I told you that there's no actual explicit report of the disciples giving their report in Matthew, and there are several things that happened between then and the feeding of the 5,000. But Mark, the 6th chapter, and Luke, the ninth chapter, put this almost back-to-back with their giving the report. 
And then, of course, John, the sixth chapter. So it's in all four Gospels. The background events, what has happened? John the fifth comes before John the sixth chapter, where we have that account. And there has been a feast of the Jews, and at Bethesda, Jesus is there, and he's healed on the Sabbath. And this is one of the key events in the Gospel of John. We said it last week. It caused opposition amongst the leaders in Jerusalem. And they sought to kill Jesus because he said that God was his father and therefore making himself equal with God. So we find him then going back to Galilee, and that's when he sent out the 12 to the villages in that region, to the surrounding towns. They have returned with a good report. And at the same time, Herod has then incarcerated John the Baptist. And he's had this lavish birthday feast and his stepdaughter has danced before him. And then in response to that, he says, I'll do anything for you. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she asks for what? The head of John the Baptist. And so John was executed. That's happened. You know, Herod was pretty worried because he hears about Jesus. And he thinks that Jesus is who? He thinks that it is John the Baptist resurrected because he sees the what? the miraculous powers that work in Jesus. Or perhaps it could be Elijah or one of the prophets. You see, Jesus' actions have made Herod then very concerned about this, and he begins to seek Jesus. Therefore, and the significance of that story is, therefore Jesus withdrew by boat to a secluded place. And then we have the story coming up a little bit later about the feeding of the 5,000, but not yet. In John, the sixth chapter, we have the background given a little bit more. It says the time of the year of the feeding of the 5,000 was about Passover. So it was in the spring, probably a year before Jesus' crucifixion. And this fits with what it says in this passage. It says that they sat down on the what? On the green grass. The grass was not always green in Palestine, in, in the Holy Land, <laughs> only in the springtime. And it fits right in with Psalm 23. He makes us to do what? To lie down in green pastures. There's some facts from the other accounts. From Matthew, the 14th chapter, we see that before the feeding, we know that he was teaching, but he was also healing. And it tells us that in Luke, the ninth chapter. He had compassion, and he not only taught, but he healed them. It says also, too, in Matthew's account that this 5,000 did not include men and women. Now, what typically we think that means is, well, there were men and women there, so there were many more, that the numbering was only of the men of the 5,000. But, you know, this could be there weren't any women and children there. They were excluded. It could be that this was an all-male assembly. There are even some scholars that think that maybe this was the beginning of a rising of people that's because he was so popular, that they are there for a specific purpose, that they are there in order to try to get him to become king. And we know that in John the sixth chapter, that indeed is what happened. They began to pursue him for that reason. And John the sixth chapter tells us that Philip was the one who made the comment, 200 denarii? How much is 200 denarii? It varies according to research, but probably about eight months' salary, almost a month's salary for each of the, of the disciples. 
And it's Andrew who then brought the boy with the fish. We find that from John the sixth chapter. So what are some of the main points that we need to see from this? First is, I think, Jesus' motivation. Jesus' motivation is driven by his awareness of the people's need and the ability of the Father to provide. The people are in desperate need, and he knows that the Father will provide for them. People live by, from hand to mouth. We know that. Bread wasn't like you buy down at Kroger's or... Albertsons or Walmart, wherever you shop, didn't last for days, couldn't put it in the refrigerator. Some of you have been in the Middle East. Some of you have actually eaten some of that flat kind of pita bread that's great when it comes out of the oven one day, but the next day it is what? Hard as a brick. So they literally lived from day to day because the bread was perishable. And many of them don't have much means to buy bread to begin with. Many of them were, were poor. So Jesus cared for them. He cared for their physical needs in addition to their spiritual needs. He has already told them in Matthew, the sixth chapter, to do what? Every day. To pray for their daily bread. And here he comes to provide it. And he gives God the glory. He doesn't just break the bread and hand it out. It says, and he had taken the bread, and just like we did this morning, after he blessed it, after he gave credit to God for it, then he broke it and then he distributed it. So it was an awareness of their need and also the sureness that God would provide, the Father would provide. And he's driven by compassion. And you know the word means that it's moved by one's innermost feelings, the deepest bowels, if you will. And it's used mostly in the Gospels of Jesus, not exclusively. And almost always, when Jesus feels compassion, he performs a what? A miracle. And he does it here. There are other occasions when he was moved with compassion and did this. He was moved with compassion when he saw the leaderless crowd. And then he doesn't perform a miracle there, but then he sends out the 12 to the villages to take the gospel. And oh, by the way, that's when he says to pray for harvesters for the gospel. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, a little bit later after this, in the feeding of the 4,000, he feels compassion, performs a miracle. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, not just blind Bartimaeus, but Matthew tells us there was another blind man there. There were two blind men, and he feels compassion on them, and he heals them. In Mark, the first chapter, the leper that comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. Jesus feels compassion and he reaches out and he touches the leper and then he heals him. In Mark, the ninth chapter, the demon-possessed boy that the disciples could not heal. We talked about that this morning. <laughs> as much as they had healed and performed miracles before in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and the other villages and towns around there, it comes to this event after the transfiguration. They can't heal him. And Jesus feels compassion for the boy. And when he says, everything is possible, for those who believe, the father responds and says what? I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And yet he still had compassion and healed the boy. With the widow of Nain, he sees her and he feels compassion and he, he then raises him from the dead. The reason for his compassion is found in that phrase that is used in Matthew the ninth chapter and also again here. Because he looks at them and they are like what? Sheep without a shepherd. They are leaderless. And he knows that he has come to be what? Their shepherd. You see, he was fulfilling his messianic role as shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. Like Moses, there's a picture of Moses that he brings Joshua to him, and there's this transfer of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua becomes a great military leader, as, as Moses had been too. But the role that is identified there when we look at the Old Testament in Numbers 27, the role that he was investing Joshua with was to be the shepherd of the people. Now stop and think about this. There is going to be a prophet who arises as it like unto Moses. And Moses was seen as the shepherd of the people, and so was Joshua. And this is prophesied time and time again in the Old Testament, in Isaiah the 20th chapter, or 40th chapter, in Ezekiel the 34th chapter, in Micah the 5th chapter. The coming Messiah is pictured as being the shepherd. And Jesus declares this in John the 10th chapter. Four chapters after the account of the feeding of the 5,000. He said, I am the what? I am the good shepherd. So his motivation is driven by his identity as the shepherd, his compassion for the people, his awareness that God can provide the need, and his compassion for the people. What about his identity? Jesus' identity. Well, he is shepherd. He is an acclaimed prophet. Uh, In John the 6th chapter, the account of this event, the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of that, it's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but at the end of that, then the people proclaim, they say, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. They recognize him as a prophet. So he is acclaimed as a prophet. And we've identified several times already when this was spoken. But was he just a prophet? We know that he wasn't. As great as Moses was as a prophet, he was not the bread of heaven. He was not the expected one. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, he says this, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. You see, that wasn't Moses' miracle. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. We know who he was speaking about. The prophet Jesus was reduplicating miracles that had been done in the Old Testament when he did this. He reduplicated Moses in the wilderness, and God providing manna to the people. He was reduplicating what Elijah had done with the widow of Zarephath, with the endless flour and oil. There's also a story about Elisha. Elisha had a hundred prophets that were following him, and they were hungry, and they only had 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha somehow, doesn't say he multiplied it, but he made provision for all the hundred out of the 20 loaves. Now you take a look at the contrast here. 100 out of 20 loaves, this is 5,000 out of how many loaves? Five. You see, Jesus' identity is found in his being the Messiah as the bread of life, and we know this. John 6 says, he says this, I am, one of those I am statements, one of the statements of his divinity, he says, I am the bread of what? I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. More effective than Moses He is a prophet like Moses, but he is more effective than Moses. John's account goes on to say this. Your fathers ate manna in the desert, and they did what? They died. (laughs) This, this is the bread which comes out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. He's speaking of himself. More effective than Moses. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I give will be for life, the life of the world, and this is my flesh. 
He's not only more effective than Moses, he is greater than Moses. The author of Hebrews makes this very clear. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much and much more glory as the builder. For you see, the builder of the house has more glory than the one who then simply occupies the house itself, which was Moses. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So what he's doing here is he's comparing and contrasting Moses with Jesus. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, and that's good, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and of course the Son of God. So his identity is not just as a prophet, but the messianic prophet that is greater than Moses. A couple or three other observations. What was Jesus' priority in this? Well, he wanted to meet their physical need. That's, that's true. But his ultimate priority was to provide spiritual food. So, so what does he do before he ever feeds them? He heals, and then he also what? He teaches them. And we're told in the gospel account that he taught them about the kingdom of God in Luke. Later, in John's account, he rebukes them because what's happened he has then left there. He's tried to escape from them again, and they come across the lake, and they're there again the next day. And he rebukes them because they want food. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which what? Endures to eternal life, which only the Son of Man can give to you. So his priority was spiritual food. But he knew that he needed to meet the need, the physical need. And that's a good lesson for us today as we preach the gospel. As we teach the truths of God, people have physical needs. And this can be an entree in providing an opportunity for us to, to share spiritual food. And we should never, never ignore that opportunity. Another observation is about Jesus' method. This was a natural miracle. Well, wait a minute. All miracles are supernatural. What I mean by that is, was the parting of the Red Sea a supernatural miracle? Well, you might say it was. But God used what? natural means to accomplish it. For we know from the scripture that a great east wind came and separated. Now, it was a miracle from God. There's no question about that in that respect. It was supernatural. But it was a using of natural, if you will, elements. It's, this isn't like changing water to wine. You got water and then you got wine, okay? Uh, it's not like his stilling the storm. He takes bread. The miracle is in what? taking those five loaves and then multiplying them enough to feed 5,000. You know, it prompts some to say, well, you know, here's what really happened. And you've heard the story. Here's what really happened. You know, Jesus starts breaking the bread and there are people that have loaves in their cloaks, you know, and they are really inspired by this. So they pull their bread out and they break it. And he's a good example. Well, the problem with that is, folks, it is very, very clear from the tone of the Gospels and the reason that this story is told and everything that I have said about God performing miracles through Christ as a prophet, it's very clear that this was a miracle. It's very obvious from the story that Jesus, and it says he continued to break and to distribute, that it was, even though using natural resources, it was a miracle nonetheless. And he provided for all, the whole multitude. Stop and think about this. Who might have been in the crowd? I suspect that there were some that were in the crowd that were opposed to him. 
I suspect that there were some in the crowd, the Bible doesn't say this, but I suspect that there were some that were agents of Herod, beginning to try to track this guy down and to find out what he's saying. And is it John the Baptist who has been resurrected? Hmm, I suspect so. We do know that there were Pharisees and Herodians in Galilee that had already sought to kill him. So folks, I don't think that this is an antiseptic, sanitized crowd of only people who love Jesus. I think there were probably opponents out there. Uh, Take the theory that some have that this may have been a large group of people that were coming to make him king. There were probably zealots in the crowd as well that did, in fact, want to make him king. And yet Jesus did not discriminate. Jesus fed them all. Just as the the Father sends the sun to shine, and he sends the rain to fall on whom? The just and the unjust. He provided for all. He employed and he taught his disciples. He used them. You see, the disciples were reluctant, and frankly, I don't blame them. What a nuisance. Here we are. We're on a retreat, you know, sort of like we're going on maybe the road to Emmaus or something like that, you know. We're going to get away, and we're going to focus on being with a master, and we're going to be rejuvenated. We're going to be regenerated. We're going to have our batteries recharged. We're just going to get some rest like we talked about this morning. And here comes that crowd again, <laughs> interrupting a much-needed rest. Not only that, think of the great sacrifice that it was going to take, 200 denarii to feed them all. But Jesus didn't let them off the hook. And he doesn't let us off the hook either, folks. Sometimes we get resentful. Sometimes we feel like we're worn out. Sometimes we feel like people are probably taking advantage of us. He didn't let them off the hook. He looks at them and he says, you, (laughs) you give them something to eat. Wow. He didn't say, I'm going to give them something. He looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. You see, if they were going to be fishers of men, there was a responsibility that goes along once you catch the fish to take care of them. Wow. You see, what does Jesus say to Peter at the end of John's gospel? Three times. You see, this is a precursor to that. You give them something to eat. And he says to Peter, what? Feed my sheep. Nourish my flock. Nourish my sheep. You see, Jesus was using this as teaching for his disciples, and it's instructive for us. He was mentoring them. You know, he didn't just perform the miracle. He involved them in what he was doing. Isn't that great to be a part of what God's doing? This morning we talked about being yoked to Christ and then being yoked to each other and the great opportunity to work together as a team. This is what he's doing. It's a team ministry. He's mentoring them. He's not just doing it. He's showing them how to do it. He's not just fishing for them. He is teaching them how to what? Be fishers of men and providers of men. He's teaching them servanthood. (laughs) So, uh, you know, later he says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to offer himself as a ransom for many. It's a prelude to that teaching later. We're here to do what? To serve people that are in need. He's teaching them stewardship. And afterward, they did what? They collected 12 baskets of leftovers. And and after the feeding of the 4,000, okay, how many loaves did they have? Seven loaves. And how many baskets did they pick up? Seven baskets. Stewardship. They didn't quite learn the lesson. Because in that account of the 
4,000, almost immediately after that, they're in a boat. And they set out. And they look around and they don't have anything but a loaf of bread. That's all they have. They've just collected seven baskets. So Jesus has a little bit more to teach them about stewardship, I think. And he's teaching them compassion. He said, in this account of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that he has compassion on them. But when you read the account of the feeding of the 4,000, he explains the reason for his compassion. He not only has compassion, but he says this, and Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for these people. You see, because they have been faithful in remaining with me now for three days and they don't have anything to eat and I do not want them to go away hungry because they would faint along the way. He explains the reason for his compassion. So it's not just that he models it, but he's teaching them compassion and stewardship and servanthood and mentorship. And then next to the last point, there's a liturgical dimension to this. He did what with the bread? He took it. What did he do next? He blessed it, and then he did what? He broke it, and then he what? He gave it. That is exactly the same formula that is used at the Last Supper. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. So something else is going on here. This is a picture of the Messianic banquet that is to come. And we're in the interim time now. We celebrate the Lord's Supper until one day we will partake of the Messianic banquet in heaven. It's prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, all peoples, you see, on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. Mentions wine twice in there for us Baptists, right? He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from their faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. This is a precursor to the Lord's Supper, and yet beyond that, the Messianic banquet, the marriage of the banquet, the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Last point. There's an epilogue to this. There's an epilogue. He's wildly popular. In John, the sixth chapter, we've already said this, what happens? The people begin to pursue him, hound him, chase after him because they want to make him what? King. Not just priest, not just prophet, but we want to make you king. And he did what? It says he withdrew to the mountain. You know, whenever they, they, they tried to get Jesus to kill him, he always kind of slipped away through the crowd, slipped out of the temple. And, and, and yet here, when he's wildly popular and people want to then make him king, he does the same thing. He slips away into the mountain. He crosses the sea at night, and that's the background then for the disciples seeing him, what? Walking on the water. And then the next day, John 6 chapter, it's of course then when he tells them about being the bread of life. There were later reactions. You see in John the 6th chapter, because he then said, not only am I the bread of life, but whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood then will live forever. And because of this, many found it to be a hard saying, and many did what? They abandoned him. This gives Peter the occasion then when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, okay, so what are y'all going to do? Peter, what are y'all going to do? Are you going to leave me as well? And what does Peter say? He says, where can we go? <laughs> You're, you're the Christ, the son of the... He didn't do it then, but he, he doesn't proclaim he's Christ then. But he says, where can we go? You see, for you are the one that has the words of eternal life. 
And of course, that anticipates then his later confession at Caesarea Philippi, where he did say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus continued his prophetic ministry. Um, Hebrews, the first chapter, begins this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Jesus, we see here, is the culmination. He is the zenith of prophecy. All of their prophets pale in comparison. Today, his primary role is not prophet. His primary roles are what? Of those three. Priest and king. And he's going to come again someday as the king of all glory, riding on the clouds. But, you know, even after he was glorified, he continued to prophesy, didn't he? What prophetic word do we have from him even after he was glorified? Now, I know that we have all of the New Testament that was written afterward through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what book do we have that it explicitly comes from Jesus to the churches? The book of Revelation. So he continued to prophesy. And today his prophetic ministry, I don't want to stretch it too far. His prophetic ministry continues. He's priest and king in heaven. His prophetic ministry continues how? Through the proclamation of the word and the preaching of the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and to believe the good news of the kingdom of God. So we have a great responsibility. I know that prophecy will end someday, and something, some people believe that prophecy has already ended in the first century. I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't believe much in predictive prophecy today. And if somebody does do it, they better be what? 100% right and accurate every time. I don't think that that kind of prophecy continues. But the other kind of prophecy does, and that is what? Forthtelling the word of God and proclaiming the kingdom of God.